64 to 38 is our text this morning. 1638 is the page it's on. Thank you. So we're picking up in the middle of dinner here, or close to the end of dinner. This is Jesus' last supper with his disciples on the night before he's crucified. He is betrayed this night. It's the night before he's crucified. And last week we heard a message from Pastor Gina that incorporated what that supper was like and how um, they would have partaken of bitter herbs. And that the, those really symbolized the bitterness of uh, betrayal that Jesus was experiencing even at that supper. So it's still supper time, and the, sec- the text right before where we start ends with uh, Jesus decreeing that the Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe or warning to the one who betrays him. And it says the disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And then, a dispute arose also among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what's written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. You, let me just say a word about that last paragraph before I start preaching. You, you might wonder, as I did, what, 
what is, uh, what's going on with Jesus recommending now that they go and sell some stuff so that they can buy swords? Uh, that doesn't really seem like Jesus. And it doesn't seem in keeping with everything he's taught and the way he's acted up to this point. And you would be right. All the commentators say he's actually speaking kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, joking as it were. They're going to number me among one of the transgressors. They're going to say I'm a sinner, so we might as well have something that they can label us with, is, the, is what they say he's insinuating, and that his disciples misunderstand him when they say, Lord, here's some swords, and he says, okay, that's enough. So it's hard to know for sure that that's what's happening, because tone, you can't read tone. It's like reading an email, right? Uh, but that's what, that's what the commentators think is happening here. They, they do not think Jesus is telling his disciples to arm themselves and resist the way that the world resists uh, physical violence. Okay? Uh, if you have any more questions about that piece, you can ask me about that later. I'm not going to talk about that as a part of the sermon. I, I wish I could tell you where I read this little story that I'm going to tell you, and so that you'd know where it was, but I can't. I just remember I read it sometime in the last year, and I completely forget where, where it was. But here's the little story I heard. There was a bunch of younger people, maybe college age, who were, they had the, the privilege and the opportunity to be with a man who was in his 70s who had just lost his wife of over 50 years. And as they sat with this man, uh, listening to him, he just began to ruminate about his wife. He began to remember her. He began to tell some stories. And at a certain point, he had a, a kind of a look come over his eyes, and he said to himself, Who was this woman? Who was this woman that I was married to these 50 years? I, I knew her. I, I slept with her. She was the mother of my children, my best friend, we shared life together, and yet there's so much about her that's still a mystery that I don't understand. Who was this woman? I'm telling you that to start because I think that there is a, 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 such depth to each of us as human beings, as people created in God's image. And it's really easy for us to think, oh, I know so-and-so, and and then say three things about them. When really there is unending depth to discovering each person. And if there's unending depth in learning and growing to know each other, how much more isn't there with the Lord? And so the Apostle Paul, when he reaches the end of his life, near the end of his life, he writes a letter to the Philippian church. And in that letter he says to the church, I want to know Jesus Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know him. And if we're paying attention at all, we might say, what do you mean, Paul? You want to know Jesus. You met him. You talked to him. Aren't you like really, really close to him? You wrote most of the New Testament. You seem to walk with him more closely than most of us do. You want to know him? There is unending depths to our Lord and to knowing him. And Paul knew that. And the reason I'm starting with what seems really disconnected to our text this morning is because as I meditated on this text this week, I felt like 
one of the things that the Lord would have me do is just say to you, congregation, come with me and look at Jesus again and know him more deeply. Look with me through this text. Look at the humility of our king and look with me at the authority of Jesus and look with me at the grace that is in Jesus and look with me at the provision that Jesus promises. Look with me at Jesus again and let's say together, who is this that says, I am among you as one who serves? Who is this? The word he uses there is diakonia. It's the word that we get deacon from and the literal meaning of it is one who waits at a table. Who is this one who is among us as one who waits at a table? If we had either of our two presidential candidates among us this morning, and they were among us, and they walked up to us, and they didn't have any posturing or any political agenda, but just started to say, Hi, I'm so-and-so, and can I help you and is there any way that I could serve you and they were genuine we might be flabbergasted because they're people that are looked to as I don't want to use the word great but um, (laughs) because I don't want you to think that I think that either of them are great but but they're but they're they're elevated they're in worldly senses important they have a lot And so if they were among us this morning and they genuinely were to come and serve and say, how can I help you? Can I help you with your rent? Can I help you with this? We probably would drop our jaws, you know, like, you want to help me? You're here, you're serving me? You? Who is this God man who's among us As a servant, who is he? As one who waits upon a table. When you go to a restaurant, a waiter comes to you and says, what would you like? How can I help you? Do you have enough? And Jesus says, I'm among you as one who comes to you and says, what would you like me to do for you? Remember blind Bartimaeus? What would you like me to do for you? Who is this God who comes to the very people he created and says, what can I do for you? Who is this one to whom we owe all allegiance and worship that says, can I help you? Can I serve you? Can I offer my life up for you? I'm among you as one who serves. And it would be really, really easy, if not tempting, for me to turn this into a moralistic sermon and say, that's what we need to do. We need to be like Jesus. After all, remember the the essence of discipleship? What's a disciple? One who comes after and becomes exactly like the, the rabbi or the master. And so it would be really easy for me to say, church, we need to all go and serve like Jesus. Now, that wouldn't be bad, 
But I want to tell you two things. One is, you're already serving. I see such beautiful service among us. I marvel. I marvel. This last week I found myself just bent over with gratefulness as I heard about numerous different ways that Mary Phillips just silently was going about making food for Gold Rush and for the church and just was among us as one who serves. And then I thought about Hazel and the way that every week for all seven years I've been here and long before that, she comes in and makes coffee. So 26 years she's been coming in and making coffee. Thanks, Hazel, for the clarification. And I, and I think about Kathy Adama, who for five or six years has been dutifully gathering every every person who comes in that she's able to, their... their um, birthday and their anniversary and sends cards in the mail. And I could go on and on and on with the way that I see us as among each other as one who serves. And the get well cards. Thank you, Dot. But if I did that, I think we'd be missing something. And the something that we'd be missing is the answer to the question, what is it that enables Jesus to serve this way? Because we can easily copy Jesus in our own strength and then we'll get tired and bitter if we don't get noticed, if people don't appreciate us, if um, it's really hard. It, there's, a, there's a lot of ways that we can copy Jesus for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivations and um, still be serving. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what enables one of such great love and glory and power and authority to get on his hands and knees and touch lepers and welcome back prostitutes and cleanse and drive demons out and what enables him to do this with such joy and persistence and perseverance and I believe the answer to that question is found in the words that God the Father speaks to him and over him at his baptism where he says this is my son with him I'm well pleased it's the pleasure of God the Father it's living full In God the Father's love, it's knowing himself as a son of God, a child. Not not mustering up enough enough scripture that he, he believes it intellectually. But it's being full in his spirit. In his inner being. This is why Paul prays for the Ephesian church. I pray that you may be strengthened with power from the Spirit in your inner being that the love of Jesus Christ may dwell within you because love fills. It fills the empty places that we've been searching for filling all our life. Love from God fills. And Jesus was God incarnate. He was full of the Father's love. And so he serves out of an overflow of the Father in him. He doesn't need to ask anybody for anything. He could just invite them to come follow and receive from him because he's full. 
And if we're not full, it's not because God isn't willing to give or because he doesn't love us the same way he loves Jesus. It's because we haven't learned how to receive and we're trying to live half empty or serve half empty. He wants to fill. That's why we've been singing about this morning. There is no lack in Christ. If you feel a lack, go to Christ. If you feel a lack, it may be because you have not or are not receiving from him. Start with communion with Jesus Christ. The Bible says those of us who come to faith in him are joined to him. We are one spirit. He put his spirit in us and we are one with him. And so commune with the risen Lord who knows himself to be full, who is loved and who wants to impart to you love and joy and peace. And it's out of that fullness that Jesus can then turn to his disciples and say, you know what? You are those who've stood by me. He doesn't condemn them for boasting and arguing. He reminds them of who they are. That, that stuff you were just doing, that's not your identity. You're off track, but you are those who stood with me. You're faithful. You're mine. And he says, now I confer on you a kingdom. It's out of the overflow. He confers on them a kingdom. And that word confer that he uses is really interesting. The, the Greek word is diatite. Tithamai, and what it, all the other places in the New Testament that it's used, it means either to enact a will or make a covenant. So there's a legal transaction that's happening here. Jesus is actually legally transferring to them something that was transferred to him from God the Father. What is that? It's authority to represent God. In the Gospel of John... John, Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of John, As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus was a sent one, sent into the world to represent this is God. This is what God is like. This is who he is. These are his words. When you heard Jesus, the book of Hebrews says you were hearing God. He's the exact representation of God. These are the ones who've been faithful. They've been with Jesus. And now he's conferring on them. Here's authority. He hasn't given them power yet. Power comes at Pentecost. That's a separate thing. Power is the ability to make something happen. This is permission to represent God. This is permission to be an ambassador. Now let's switch the camera for a second. Think about human ambassadors. Let's think about, let's just say we have an ambassador from Pakistan who's here in the United States. That ambassador to the United States represents Pakistan in an official capacity. And so they're given a home to live in. And that home, even though it's on United States soil, is considered sovereign Pakistani territory. Did you know that? Every embassy, every place where someone has an embassy is considered sovereign territory or ground 
for that nation. And the person who lives there is one who represents the interests and the views and the relationship with the sovereign territory that they're representing. And so if we had a Pakistani ambassador with an embassy and a car, wherever they went, they would be representing the official views of the place that they, that they came from. Jesus is conferring on his disciples and on us authority to represent heaven, to represent God the Father, even as he has represented him to us. In other words, he's saying, your life is now sovereign ground for God on earth. You say, how far does this authority extend? Well, this authority that he gives to us to represent God extends as far as whatever call God has on us. So God, God gives each of us authority for the sphere that he's placed us in. You, you all each have y'all or you each. <laughs> we want to be inclusive here, right? So southerners are welcome. Y'all or you each have a life. And your life is a sphere. And whatever sphere God's called you into... So mine includes pastoring this church. Whatever sphere, God gives you authority. There's nothing he's called you to do or be or live that he doesn't give you authority for to be his representative. Everywhere you go, you are his representative. And the very least or smallest circle is your own life. Your, the circle of your own life. So if you just, do you know how when you go to a rink, um, sometimes before the game, they have players come on that maybe you don't. I don't know how many people watch hockey. But when the players come on the ice, um, they have it's dark and there's spotlights, if it's special, and a spotlight will follow a player, and then wherever he goes, the spotlight will follow him around. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen that? Okay, well, you can imagine it. Okay, it's kind of like that. We are joined to Christ. We are his ambassadors and our life is under the spotlight of heaven. And wherever we go around, he authorizes us to represent God. God is this way. This is his love. This is his joy. He authorizes us to impart to a needing world who Jesus is out of the overflow. We can be among the world as one who serves Jesus in us. We're authorized to represent what a commission. What a commission. And then come these words from Jesus, so that you may sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And you say, no, what is that? That he all of a sudden is skipping from now to the end of time and talking about that judgment. I believe what's happening is they are about to enter a time of such stress and trial and grief and difficulty kicked out of synagogues, torn apart families for their belief in Jesus, persecuted from the inside and the out. And Jesus is saying to them, so sure and complete is this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, that you will sit, and you can hold to my words, you will sit in judgment over the world, over the 12 tribes of Israel, you will judge at the end, he's painting a picture. He moves from now to the end to say uh, to them, you can count on that as you make your way through what's coming. And what's coming, and what often comes, 
for all of us who follow Jesus, is experiences of failure. And so Jesus says, Simon, Satan is asked to sift. It's the process where you wheat gets sifted and the chaff gets removed from the good stuff. Satan's asked to be God's tool to sift all of you. And I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. How many of you know that there are conversations that happen in the spirit realm that we are not privy to? Something going on behind the scenes here. And it's important for us to notice that Satan had to ask. That he had to ask. That those of us who belong to God in Jesus Christ have such security. That we're not victims at the whim of his every desire. We're in Jesus. He had to ask. But notice also he was given permission. He was given permission to be that agent or that vessel of God's purifying work. There was a work that needed to happen in Peter in order for Peter to be effective as a servant of Jesus. He's got way too much confidence in himself, in his own strength. I'm going to go with you to death. I'm. He's too much confidence in himself. So Jesus says, I've prayed for you. That when you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now notice this: you can fail without your faith failing. You can fail without your faith failing. You can deny you know Jesus. That's a pretty big failure, and still not lose faith. How does that work? If your faith, it depends on the object of your faith. If your faith is in yourself, if your faith is in your strength to be faithful, then it'll fail because you will fail. We all do. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you can fail without your faith in Jesus Christ failing. Ultimately, even though Peter had too much confidence in himself, in his own abilities, his faith wasn't in himself. His faith was in Jesus Christ. And Jesus prays for him. I think this is the most beautiful thing. If you, if I got into trouble and I had to go down to Kent County Courthouse next week and you promised you were going to come with me and you're my closest friend and you say to me, I will be, I will be there no matter what. And that, I'm going to, I'm going to go on trial and I'm going to have, you know, it's, it's vulnerable and shaming to just have your, your life talked about publicly and accusations made, and especially if they're not true. Like, that, that's horrible and it's hard. And you're going you're gonna, to gonna stand with me. You are going to come as my best friend and say, whatever happens, I'll be by your side. At least you can know I'll be with you. I'll be supporting you. Okay, I've got some comfort. And then if you don't show up, oh, that hurts. That hurts. Jesus knows he's about to under, enter into accusation of the worst kind. And he's about to be labeled as a transgressor, though he's innocent and pure. And everyone will leave him. And he knows it. And he knows Peter's going to betray. And he doesn't even get angry at him. He doesn't curse him. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't look down. He prays for him. He prays for the one who's going to betray him. 
That's why I'm talking about such fullness in God's love. Because it's God's love that, that enables and empowers us to pray for people. We cannot do that in our own strength. It's God's love. And Jesus, Hebrews says, ever lives to intercede for us. 8, 9, or 10, somewhere in there, those chapters. He ever lives to intercede. Doesn't that change things? No matter what struggle you're going through, Jesus is praying for you. And when you fail, He's already prayed for you to come back. He's made the way through the cross and He's praying for you to come back. So what that means is we can fail without shame. See, when we fail, that's the place where the devil gets in and he starts accusing and bringing shame and weighing down and he wants to work to separate us. But when we recognize we failed, we just get back up. He knew He knew Peter would fail. He knew we would fail. And so he looks him in the eyes and he says, I'm praying for you. And you've got to believe Peter remembered those words after he failed. Jesus makes the way back. Jesus prays him back. And it's this experience of receiving grace that enables and empowers Peter to be a forgiver. And Peter to lead the church. And so Jesus just skips right on over Peter's protestations and he says to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night's over. It just kind of states it matter of fact. And then he moves on. And he says to them, when I sent you out, Luke 9, Luke 10, first the 12, then the 72, uh, he's recalling the times that he said, here's power, here's authority. You go as my representatives. You proclaim good news. You drive out demons. You heal the sick. You preach the gospel. Now, when I sent you, did you lack anything? And they say nothing. And he says, good. Now take a purse and a bag and the sandals. And you say, well, why do they take it now? Because they learned their lesson. That's why. Because they know. There's no lack in the kingdom of God. When you are following Jesus... There is no lack at all. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right way of living, his will for your life. If you seek and you know you are seeking God's will for your life, his righteous way of living that spills over into all your relationships, this is very much about how the way we treat people, If you are seeking God's will for your life, there is no lack. You can trust, you can count on God's provision. No ifs, ands, or buts. But, are you, but I, Hebrews 3, 4, says, By these two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. So much of the anxiety or the pressure or the angst that we feel in our lives is because somewhere in our hearts we believe God is not enough 
God will not take care fully. God will not provide. I've got to do it for myself. I've got to get stressed. I've got to get anxious. I've got to provide. What if? And Paul writes to the Colossian church, and he says to them, In Christ all the fullness of God dwelt, and in him you have been given fullness. You have been given fullness. You don't lack anything. So if you think you lack something or you feel like you lack something, you might say, God, am I seeking your will? Is my life in line with your son? Am I looking for your kingdom in my life and in my relationships and on this earth? Because if you are and if the answer is yes, there is no lack at all. So let's wrap this all up. Jesus, out of the overflow of the Father's love, says, I am among you as one who serves, and he fills us, and he sends us out to be among the world as those who serve. And we can be empowered to make coffee, or food, or write cards, or give hugs, or pray, or serve. We can do anything in Jesus' strength and love. He gives us authority to represent God and share in the joy of saying, this is what God is like. This is who God is. This is what God wants to do. He authorizes us to represent God to the degree that we know him in his word. And he makes preparation already for times of failure. He prays, calls back, and sends us out again as restored witnesses to him, his life. And he says, as you do this, you will not lack anything. And I think all you can do after that is worship. And so let's worship the Lord. Let's stand and worship him.